one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the History of England, episode 296, The Rising of the North. Before we start, very quickly, all you members, you know we've come to the end of William Marshall, you might do. Anyway, if you're interested, there is a quiz, just for members, up on the History of England website. So just go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk and fill up your boots and see how much you remembered. Last time, I left you with an explosion in Scotland at Kirker Field in Edinburgh. Does everyone know about this? It must surely be up there as one of the most famous assassinations ever. But then who am I to assume? Everyone has an interest in Scottish and British history. That would be the height of presumption. Anyway, here's what happens. There is a bit of a backstory which occurs in Craig Miller Castle. Just before the baptism of Mary's son James in December 1566, Mary stopped and stayed at Craig Miller Castle for a conference with many of her lords. Preparations for the baptism were discussed, which is, you know, normal. But discussions also seem to have been carried on about what to do about husband Darnley, which is, you know, not that normal. What seems to have happened was that Murray and Argyle fell to chatting about the Darnley problem in their room and then popped along to Argyle's room to continue chewing the cud and possibly raid those little packets of custard creams or hot chocolate, as you do. Then they sent for Huntley and discussed the cut of his jib and finally then went to have a chat with the flashman of the piece, Bothwell. Off they all then went to see Mary. Their first plan was for Mary to get a divorce. But Mary would not hear of it, because she wanted to do nothing that might affect the legitimacy of her son. The Lords probably then went further and suggested some way of coercing Darnley and forcing him to behave himself. Murray was not there, incidentally, at this point, sensibly standing aside. But the Lords were confident that Murray would look through his fingers, or turn a blind eye, you might say. Still, Mary refused to hear of it. At this, Maitland pulled the lords away to continue the discussion elsewhere, promising they'd plan nothing that was not good and approved by Parliament. But Maitland was not known as Mr Machiavelli for nought, and a further discussion did indeed take place, with Murray joining them this time. Legend has it that at this point a bond was signed by the lords, but no copy has been found and so it could be baloney. But the agreement seems to have been to solve the Darnley problem by ridding Mary permanently of this turbulent consort. You know, permanently. <sniffs> what? Murder an anointed monarch on purpose? I hear you gasp. Yep, unprecedented since the days of old Alba. No, I mean there was James III, but he, as the phrase go, 
just happened to be killed, and James IV wore an iron belt in penance he was so aggrieved for the rest of his life. Well, folks, I hear your pain. Now, did Mary know about these plans 2.0? Almost certainly not, but nothing is certain in this. So, Darnley, in February 1567, was a very poorly pigwigging, covered in boils and stuff, which is probably the advanced stages of syphilis. So, when he returned from Dad's house in the Clyde, he stayed in a house in, you guessed it, Kirkerfield in Edinburgh, to recuperate so as not to infect anyone at Holyrood. On the night of the 9th, there was a bit of a shindig round at his place, but Mary and the others left before midnight because Mary had promised to go to a servant's wedding the following day. But then, in the early hours of the 10th of February, a whopping explosion woke her up and she sent Bothwell and others to investigate and see what had happened. They found that Darnley's house had been completely mullered, blown to smithereens. And then they found Darnley's body, but he was outside, and it was along with a servant. Neither had any marks on their bodies, that both obviously were dead, and they'd probably been asphyxiated. Scottish society went potty, macho mistrust, does not start to cover it. Initially, at least, suspicion did not fall on Mary, but instead much sympathy for her. The name Bothwell was what the moving finger wrote and having writ moved on. Nor any piety nor wit could cancel out half a line, hard as Bothwell tried. What was really crucial now was how Mary reacted. The ball lay firmly but gently in her hands, to be held firmly and diplomatically. And in her first years of the reign, Mary had shown herself well able to act with statesmanlike skill. Surely this would be no different. The world watched. Elizabeth wrote a horrified letter. I will not conceal from you that people are for the most part saying that you will look through your fingers at the deed instead of avenging it. I beg you to take this thing so far to heart that you will not fear to touch even whom you had nearest to you, if he was involved. He here means, of course, Bothwell. Elizabeth was not alone in her horror and concern. In France and in Spain, equal horror and hope was expressed, and the world waited. So Mary took aforesaid ball and conclusively, comprehensively and decisively fumbled it. She went to the servant's wedding as planned, which looked toweringly hard-hearted and unconcerned at the idea of your husband and monarch's murder. Efforts to chase down a culprit were feeble, despite everyone pointing at the figure of James Hepburn, Earl of Bothwell, and shouting at Mary, He's behind you! Placards accusing Bothwell started appearing in Edinburgh. So, what did Mary do? She went on holiday to Seaton for a couple of weeks. The trouble was that Mary was now heavily reliant on Bothwell for her security, or at least she thought she was. Bothwell controlled much of the military forces in Edinburgh and had seemed to be loyal, and he was a man of action, all swagger and trousers. Eventually, after continued outrage and placards, in April Mary and her council declared that Bothwell would stand trial. Everyone feared it would be a sham, and so it was. Bothwell was cleared. Suspicion spread that Bothwell and Mary were planning to marry 
and that Bothwell would then rule. Mary would later explain her actions, writing that her realm, being divided in factions as it is, cannot be contained in order unless our authority be assisted and set forth by the fortification of a man. What happened next is a matter of fierce debate. In April 1567, Bothwell and Mary went together to Dunbar Castle. Within a few months, Bothwell was divorced from his wife. Mary and Bothwell entered Edinburgh and were married. James Melville, an author very sympathetic to Mary, wrote that Bothwell had ravished her and laid with her against her will. Others, and many historians, are not so sure, finding it impossible to believe that anyone could conceive of such a thing against a queen. Some back up this view by pointing out that Mary did not later try to escape or fight back when she had the chance, and so conclude that Mary had fallen for Bothwell and they were indeed in cahoots. Now, there can be little doubt that Mary did not love Darnley. He'd have to be his mother or his father to love that lad by all the sounds of things. And indeed, poor Darnley's mother, Margaret Douglas, the Countess of Lennox, who was still living in England, was inconsolable. Cecil wrote that she could not be by any means kept from such passions of mind as the horribleness of the fact did require. Mary had been comprehensively and constantly betrayed and let down by Darnley. However, there is much more doubt that Mary behaved with Bothwell in the way traditionally ascribed to her, the old dichotomy of the cold calculating Elizabeth and the emotional impulsive Mary helplessly and foolish in love. There are other explanations. There is the real politique explanation. Faction and instability were so rife then Mary just had to rely on Bothwell as her only genuine leader capable of keeping a viable faction together. And then there's Kate Williams's most recent book that says, look, Mary had been comprehensively betrayed by her leading men, and now she had been brutally raped. Surely we should expect that to affect her judgment. And anyway, how many options did she have? Cecil and Elizabeth's reaction to all of this is interesting. We've seen that Elizabeth urged Mary to be firm and was disappointed, therefore, at what transpired. She wrote to Mary, To be plain with you, our grief has not been small. For how could a worse choice be made for your honour than in such a haste to marry a subject who, besides other notorious lacks, public fame has charged with the murder of your late husband? But nonetheless her sympathy was still firmly for Mary, despite that. Cecil complained how earnestly she is bent in the favour of the Queen of Scots. Cecil, meanwhile, was not so sure. For Cecil, the Spanish repression now starting in the Netherlands started a new round of egg-laying about the threat to all Protestants, Dutch, English, Scottish, whatever. For him... Mary was a Catholic threat, and he wanted at very least for her to be controlled. Possibly worse, we need to go back to 1559 and the memorial, probably written by Cecil, which recommended that if Mary was not prepared to be subject to the Scottish Parliament and Council, she should be disposed. Opposition in Scotland to Mary's marriage to Bothwell was immediate. A group of lords, the Earls of Morton, Argyll, Athol and Mara among them, took the lead in creating a new bond of confederate lords. They seized Prince James 
and they defied the Queen and Bothwell and their supporters. Finally, at Carberry Hill, two armies met, and Mary's support just leaked away. Bothwell was allowed to flee to end his life some years later in a Danish prison. Mary was taken back to Edinburgh and then imprisoned at Loch Leven, where the true extent of the Confederate Lords' plan became clear. Mary was forced to abdicate. James was crowned King of Scots at the age of one, and the Earl of Murray was made regent. Elizabeth was livid, full offended at Mary's treatment. However, Mary could swash her buckle with the best of them, as she'd shown on numerous occasions. And now she showed it again, escaping from Loch Leven and once again building an army. In Edinburgh, 10,000 enthusiastically flocked to her banners. And together with the Earl of Huntley and the Hamiltons, she declared, By battle, let us try it, and marched to take on the Regent Murray and his poxy two-bit 4,000 men. She should have won with those numbers. But her general was outgeneraled, and within 45 minutes, Murray was victorious at the Battle of Langside, May 1568. Mary then took a momentous decision. She would flee to England, and her cousin Elizabeth would put her back on the Scottish throne. She duly arrived at Workington in Cumbria, and eggs were laid all over the English political nation. What on earth would they do with her? Now, Mary's decision to leg it to England has been widely reported as a bloody awful decision. Wah, wah, oops, nul point. And you know, there's some supporting evidence for that. What follows in Scotland is five years of civil war, including the assassination of Murray. And while the civil war might not have been avoided in any case, Mary cut the legs off her supporters by going to England, whereas had she known it, she still had significant support in Scotland. And so her supporters eventually gave up, hobbled by her absence. And with hindsight, we know of course, and sorry for the plot spoiler, that it doesn't end entirely well for Mary in England. But in 1568, Mary's options must have looked very limited. And interestingly, over the next few years, Elizabeth does indeed try several times to get Mary reinstated in Scotland. What she did not bargain for was Mary's nemesis, William Cecil. What occurs is a trial of strength, a secret battle of wills between Elizabeth and Cecil, which will only end in 1587, but which the Pope probably won for Cecil in 1570. The kick-off, though, was an investigation into what had happened as regards Darnley. A tribunal was set in York. Now, Mary was as clear as was Elizabeth. This was not going to be a trial. After all, Mary had been given no lawful trial, and anyway, no one could judge her, except God. She was a queen, and not subject to English authority either. It was instead going to be an investigation into what her opponents alleged against her, and for Mary's commissioner to defend her. She would of course not be there to avoid the impression of a trial. Desperately, Mary tried to persuade Elizabeth to meet her so that she could talk her round. Elizabeth would not meet her. So why was that? After all, the lack of a meeting between Mary Queen of Scots and Elizabeth I of England has tortured writers, filmmakers and romantics through the ages. Why? Oh why? Sensibly, the likes of Schiller and 
various directors simply ignore a fact which is horribly inconvenient and a terrible dramatic error on Elizabeth's part cursor. Elizabeth probably did not want to publicly intervene and appear to make the investigation a stitch-up. It's also been advanced that maybe Elizabeth was jealous of the charismatic Scottish Queen and feared comparison. Either way, Cecil was well aware that stitch-up was what Elizabeth wanted, in the form of a clean bill of health for her fellow Queen. Murray was requested to make good his accusations and produce some solid evidence. He provided what had become known as the Casket Letters, a group of letters that supposedly implicated Mary in Darnley's death, and of an adulterous relationship with Bothwell, which had, oh, spookily just turned up on time. Cecil came to know the originals very well. He must have seen the clumsy changes that had been made to some of them, and yet he said nothing. Modern opinion is rather against the Casket Letters being genuine, though since the originals were destroyed probably by her son James, it's not possible to be conclusive about it. The tribunal at York, led by the Duke of Norfolk, were also unimpressed. Norfolk told the Queen that the letters were horrible and, if genuine, might prove her guilt. But the word was if, and he was unconvinced. And all Mary really had to do was to deny that they were hers, and that would effectively be that. Faced with an inconveniently independent tribunal, Cecil had the inquiry brought down to London and stacked it as much as he could. The Duke of Norfolk, for example, was packed off on some idiot errand to the north of England, while the London tribunal did its work. Elizabeth, however, was no idiot, and she did some counter-stacking. But critically, Cecil himself was on the commission this time. In the background, Cecil tried to make sure that whatever the result it would be a win for Cecil. Guilty, and Mary would be kept under guard in some backwater in England. Innocent, and she'd be allowed to go back to Scotland, but at best be a co-monarch with her son, shorn of real power, which would instead be vested with the Scottish lords. Heads I win, tails you lose. The result of all the stacking and counter-stacking and politicking was stalemate. Elizabeth was simply not prepared to let the tribunal rule against Mary, whatever Cecil did. Another outcome of the tribunal was some bad feeling at court for Cecil. Norfolk deeply resented his interference. Dudley felt that Cecil was standing in the way of true love, to boot. For Mary, it was a disaster. Here she was, stuck in prison, no way forward, no way back. It was a gilded prison for sure. Mary had a substantial household, a substantial budget from her pension as Queen Dowager of France, and even diplomatic representation. But prison nonetheless it was. She made her displeasure clear to Elizabeth. You say you are counselled by persons of the highest rank to be guarded in this affair. God forbid I should be the cause of dishonour to you, when it was my intention to seek the contrary. Mary was not passive. Cecil was in the end quite right that Mary was a threat. Interestingly, although Philip II had been supportive towards England, by October 1565 he had finally come round to the conclusion that there was something about Mary and that she is the gate by which religion must enter the realm of England. Mary, meanwhile, was in the market for any schemes that would advance her interests, on the scrounge for any friends and allies she could find. You can hardly blame her. 
but it also illustrates just what a bomb she had landed in English politics by coming here. She now began to reinvent herself as a Catholic hero and martyr, and as a Catholic hero and martyr, she turned to another Catholic hero with clout, Philip II of Spain, telling him how closely she was guarded and describing herself as an obedient, submissive and devoted daughter of the Holy Catholic and Roman Church. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Duke of Norfolk, meanwhile, was curious and the wily Maitland of Lethington in Scotland floated an interesting little concept. Why not make a marriage match between Mary and England's premier peer, the Duke of Norfolk? Norfolk had already sneakily been to see Mary at Bolton Castle to take a peek, and the two appear to have got on. The idea appealed to Norfolk because it might put him in line to the throne if he could get away with it, and it would be a lever to push Elizabeth close to Spain and Rome, which policy Norfolk fancied, being a religious traditionalist. And it'd be one in the eye for Cecil. Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, liked the idea too, maybe because it would push Elizabeth into reconsidering him as a husband, although it seems likely that by now Elizabeth had finally and regretfully decided that the Leicester ship had finally sailed. Off down the river Saw, presumably. Maitland and his confederate colleagues liked the idea because it might neutralise Mary, once married and legally a femme couvert in law subject to Norfolk's control. Into the story at this point comes a go-between, a Florentine. Not a biscuit in this case, which is a shame, although a Florentine is a little fancy for my tastes, but a Florentine banker called Roberto Ridolfi. Roberto was secretly channelling funds from the Pope to English Catholics. Ridolfi was in fact hunting with the hounds and running with the hare, working both for Spain and for a gent called Francis Walsingham. Of course, you'll be hearing a lot more of that name over the next few decades, but for now Walsingham is young in his career, but working with Cecil to build and deploy a network of ancients, and Ridolfi offered to get the Spanish governor in the Netherlands, the Duke of Alba, to negotiate with Elizabeth to end the trade war now going on. He also conspired with the French ambassador to bring the Catholic religion back to England. And then, Ridolfi contacted Mary herself. Meanwhile, Mary and Norfolk were conducting a romance by correspondence. Mary had leapt at the idea of marrying Norfolk, a much better catch than Dudley had been. I will live and die with you, she wrote. Neither prison one way, nor liberty the other, nor all such accidents, good or bad, shall persuade me to depart from that faith and obedience I have promised you. Norfolk demonstrated he was his girl's best friend by sending a sparkly diamond, saying he'd always held it very dear. This went on for twelve months. 
As a plan goes, it was thoroughly exciting and had absolutely zero chance of success. It would of course need Elizabeth's agreement and it would be a long, cold day in hell before she agreed to any such thing, which would clearly set Mary up as a rival. Unless it was accompanied by a rebellion, of course, that forced Elizabeth to agree. As far as Ridolfi was concerned, rebellion was indeed on the cards. In May 1569, he prepared a paper called The Enterprise of England and hawked it around to the Spanish embassy. Meanwhile, he continued to meet with Walsingham to sell information. Really, there's no trusting some people. We'll come back to old Roberto sometime in the future. Anyway, meanwhile, Murray had also done the dirty. He had been also keen on the plan, but realised then that Mary might use it to regain her position, and so he sent some letters of Norfolk on to Elizabeth. Elizabeth had been crouched on the ground with her ear pressed against the floor for a while and she had heard rumours. She had asked Norfolk difficult questions at court, which he had blandly batted away. But now Lester as well was getting nervous because the batting away was increasingly looking suspicious and treasonous. And so he spilled the beans. With the beans duly spilled, Elizabeth hit the roof and Norfolk was forced to fess up. He then fled the summer progress to go home to Kenning Hall and shivered in a cold sweat. But he wasn't entirely cautious, suggesting that he was ready for rebellion by saying that he would have friends enough to assist him. He wrote to his friends in the north, the earls of Westmoreland and Northumberland, and told them not to stir yet. That was suspicious. Why would they be stirring anyway? Although many on the Privy Council tried to reassure the Queen that Norfolk wasn't treacherous, Elizabeth was in something of a panic, by all accounts, memories of being trapped by her big sister in the Tower, and she'd actually fainted before pulling herself together. Norfolk was summoned twice to come to court. First time he gave some lame excuse, second time he realised that it was fight or flight time, and off to court he went. Except he was diverted on the way into the Tower, and nobody bothered to give him a key. This was a bad sign. He wasn't the only one to be carpeted for the dalliance with Mary. Others who had argued for the idea to Elizabeth were also carpeted. The earls of Arundel and Pembroke were questioned and ordered into house arrest. The Queen confessed herself grievously offended by Leicester, but since he'd spilled the beans and grasped everyone up, he was allowed to stay as teacher's pet. Cecil saw a chance to catch Mary plotting, but a search of her papers revealed nothing incriminating. This time. So that's all fine then, and everyone can go back to their Volters and Gaillards. Except not. There was more to come. One of the truths whispered around the corridors of England's enemies was that the north of England was the Achilles' heel of the realm, the bit missed when Thetis dipped the nation in the divine river Trent. The north, it was said, was a hotbed of Catholicism, full of angry Catholics ready to rise in support of any invasion or rebellion and throw off the yoke of the evil Protestant bastard and return in glory to Rome. And there was a kernel of truth in this, in that traditional religion was still strongest in the north at this point. Also, I should remind you of the economic background. You know the gig. 
rising population, meaning rising prices, along with inflation that ate away at real income for wage labourers. So, if you are a yeoman farmer with a bit of land, this was party time. The costs of your labourers rising slowly, income from your produce rising fast. If you were a wage labourer, this was a mare. More competition for work, so more unemployment or underemployment. Real cost of living rising ahead of wage growth. The result was hardship and a growth of crime and vagrancy that had the well-heeled in a panic about the many-headed hydra of the poor, while the poor simply tried hard to keep body and soul together. We've talked in this podcast at various times about the great Tudor rebellions, the last time being 1549 and Ket's Rebellion. Through the Tudor years and what with the Prayer Book Rebellion and the Pilgrimage of Grace in 1536 and Wyatt's Rebellion, it had almost become part of the scenery. Also, in episode 282, back in October, when life was still free and easy, I talked about the forms of protest and their resolution. I think you might remember the riot was in some ways part of the conversation in society, actually a safety valve. When a riot occurred, JPs, the Lords Leflenant and local landowners all rushed in and, unlike those big ticket events, the villagers were not decorated with gallows. Maybe some pillories, but essentially things got sorted out. Usually the grievance was addressed or partly addressed and everyone went back to doing things in the same old way. Without doubt, Economic distress was part of the picture in the frequency of riot in the Tudor century. In 1569 then, before Norfolk was locked up, there had already been three popular uprisings or riots. In Derbyshire, a camp had grown around a man peddling political prophecies. In Cumberland, there were up to a thousand people destroying local enclosures. And in Suffolk, trouble in the cloth trade led to an uprising against foreign cloth workers and a march on London. None of these went very far. There were many general reasons why uprisings and riot usually did not spread. Negotiation, as I have said, and the growth of social control in the parish as the mechanism of the poor law spread. Essentially, if you were caught in a riot, you might just not get that monetary support from the parish that you were hoping for. There was another more fundamental reason, though, and that lay in social changes brought around by economic good times for landowners. Once upon a time, the yeomanry had been critical in leading popular revolt. Think of Robert Kett, himself a yeoman accused of enclosure at one point, but leader of the revolting commons in Norfolk. Now, the gap between yeoman and wage labourer was growing wider. Less and less did the yeomanry identify with the villagers as they grew richer. More and more they identified with the gentry and were inclined to suppress riot rather than to lead it. Thus, the poor found themselves abandoned by their natural leaders and by the 17th century the nature of protest will change. However, none of this occurred to the earls of Westmoreland and Northumberland in 1569. By the way, quick quiz question for you. Westmoreland no longer exists as a county. So, what was its county town when it did exist? First right answer, we'll get a round of applause. Anyway, Norfolk's nose had been put out of joint by Cecil and Dudley's preeminence, and thus he'd been susceptible to the lure of a hook-up with Mary. 
Westmoreland and Northumberland were also feeling all out of love. You might remember, if it wasn't too dull, that one of the reasons for the success of Elizabethan government was that intersection of the matrix of government and social hierarchy, i.e. members of the court and Privy Council were often also local JPs, landowners and office holders. Were you listening when I said that, or had he drifted off? I wouldn't blame you. If you were listening, you might have noticed that I said this wasn't really the case in the north of England. The traditional peers in the north, Northumberland, Westmoreland, Cumberland, Dacre et al, were rarely at court and not on the Privy Council, so there was a greater disconnect between central and local government. So, in an attempt to retain some sort of central control, the traditional lords were booted out of offices and southern softies brought in from outside by the Privy Council. The northern peers were also miffed by religious changes. They remained often a friend to traditional practice. And the growth of Protestantism not only offended them but also removed them from the opportunity to fulfil parts of their traditional role. Because after 1563, Catholics who outwardly recused could no longer be appointed to the Privy Council or act as JPs. That's reasonably disastrous for local prestige. And it's also a negation of the raison d'etre for the nobility, which was to serve the monarch and the kingdom. As we'll talk of in some future episode, for the Catholic nobility, it is an exclusion that strikes very deep. When Norfolk was put in the tower, and after he'd written to them, the two earls of Westmoreland and Northumberland, frankly, panicked a bit. Had they also been rumbled? And indeed, they had. They consulted priests and wrote to the Pope. Interestingly, they told the Pope that only if he excommunicated Elizabeth did they believe Catholic support would rise up against her. And indeed, only this, the authorisation of the Pope, would justify the rebellion that they were planning. In London, Thomas Radcliffe, the Earl of Sussex, advised Elizabeth to offer the pair pardons for their plotting. But the Queen's blood was up and she insisted on their arrest. It pushed the pair over the edge. They saw no alternative now to rebellion. On the 13th of November 1569, the Northern Earls and 300 of their supporters stormed into Durham Cathedral, overturned the communion table and with it symbolically the Protestant religion, and Mass was once more celebrated. Their appeal to potential fellow rebels was specifically one of religion. They declared their aim to remove those disordered and evil disposed persons around the Queen who subverted the true religion in her mind, the ancient nobility and true succession. Within days, contemporaries claimed five to 6,000 people had gathered. Sending poorly armed volunteers home, the earls marched to Ripon, where another mass was held at the collegiate church there. The rebels carried banners that reflected the pilgrimage of grace, even ones showing the five wounds of Christ. On the 28th of November, they issued another call to arms, and by mid-December, there were some successes. Hartlepool had fallen to one contingent, Barnard Castle to another. But there was a problem. The rebellion simply failed to draw enough support. Really, only Lord Dacre joined the rebels from the major nobility of the North, Others, like the Earl of Cumberland, set their faces firmly against rebellion. And the ordinary people of the North 
Even most of those well disposed towards Catholicism and the aims of the rebels favoured loyalty to the Queen above loyalty to the Church. This rebellion, often referred to as the Northern Rising, by the way, is often presented as the last of the feudal rebellions of great lords flexing their muscles against the crown, drawing on their tenants and satrapies. If so, then the feudal rebellions went with a whimper rather than a bang. Very few even of the Earl's tenants came to join them. Maybe it would have had more chance of success if Mary had managed to join them or they'd managed to release her, though who knows. So there they were, the Northern Lords and their rebels, as the Queen's army approached from the south and did the 16th century equivalent of My name is Inigo de Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die. And a bit like the film, the Earls turned and legged it for Scotland, leaving the ordinary folk to receive the fury of a threatened Queen. They decided that following the leader was a great song and also legged it. The way that Elizabeth dealt with the aftermath tells us a couple of things. Firstly, she was a good traditional Tudor, just like Dad. While the percentage of rebels she killed doesn't come up to that of Mary and Wyatt's rebellion, the absolute number far exceeds it, 900 in total when the dealing's done. Everyone gets very excited about how horrid Henry VIII was, but he had only around 200 rebels executed after the massive pilgrimage of grace. So, you know, just saying. The Earl of Northumberland were sold back to the English for 2,000 quid by the Scots, since many a mickle, max a muckle, and then he was executed in 1572. The Earl of Westmoreland fled to the continent and died in penury in 1601. The aftermath also shows that Elizabeth was pretty canny, if a bit cold-hearted. She made sure that anyone with land or money was arrested and then attainted, before being executed, so that meant that all their lands came to the crown. The failure of the rebellion owed much to the changing face of society as discussed, but it also owed much to Elizabeth's political skill. The two earls found themselves largely alone, and most Catholics stayed loyal. Elizabeth also managed the propaganda afterwards. A new homily joined those regularly read out to churchgoers called the Homily Against Disobedience and Willful Rebellion. Meanwhile, when the confiscated wealth came to be redistributed, loyal members of the gentry were sought out and rewarded. A new president was appointed to the Council of the North, and he was not from the local peerage. The Earl of Huntingdon relied on the Privy Council for his power, not on his local connections. And he pursued court policy rigorously prosecuting recusants and appointing proven Protestants as preachers. Although a physical malia, the Northern Rising set a precedent most damaging to Catholicism because it associated the religion with rebellion and treachery against the state. A blizzard of ballads, sermons and pamphlets appeared from Southern Protestants, often using the term papist and traitor as synonymous. It is the start of a sad trend. But maybe it needn't have been. But sadly, into this muddy puddle in 1570 was firmly, messily and disastrously stomped the embroidered slipper of the Pope. We will hear more of the Pope's slipper in the next episode in two weeks' time. Until then, thank you very much for listening and for your lovely reviews on website, iTunes, Facebook and so on. I very much appreciate them. Good luck, everyone, and have a fabulous fortnight.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.